everybody and welcome to WChat. Today we are very excited to be talking with Dr. Carrie Pierce about working with rural women and I also want to welcome back Dr. Edmonds who if you listened to our previous podcast I talked about how she we were trying to cram in a bunch of stuff before she had a baby. Well she has now had said baby and now we are bringing her back in and trying to fill up her schedule again. So welcome back Stephanie. Thank you. It's good to be back. And how's baby? Maybe you can give people a report. <laughs> He's doing very well, eight weeks old and very healthy and big. Perfect. All right. So why don't we get started and talking with Dr. Carrie Pierce? Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Stephanie, congratulations on the new baby. Oh, thank you very much. So I'll start off with our first question. So usually I talk to our guests before we record our podcast, but I wasn't able to speak with you because I was in the middle of traveling with a toddler and a baby. <laughs> but if you could just give me and our listeners a little bit of background about yourself, we would appreciate it. So usually we have people talk about their background, so their education and training and where you currently practice and what type of patients you serve. So I was not somebody who knew that I was going to be a doctor right away. I worked in research for about five years after college. I thought that I wanted to just hang out in the lab and to kind of do some science on my own. And then kind of early in that process, it turned out that I was a lot more interested in the stories of the patients behind like the biopsy samples that I had to run tests on. And I wanted to know more about the people and like, oh, this person has cancer. Tell me all about that. I wanted to know about that rather than the actual results of my studies and the papers and things like that. And so it turned out, hey, maybe I should be a doctor. Maybe I shouldn't just stay here in a lab all day by myself. So early on in medical school, uh, I learned about the pretty poor access to abortion specifically and reproductive health care generally, and the lack of training in the medical education system, because I have always been basically liberal and for the underdog and things like that. If anything has limited access, that's where I want to be. So I became pretty involved with reproductive health training in medical school. I started a local branch of a national organization focused on increasing reproductive health care education in medical schools and did a lot of that sort of work during, during med school, doing extra rotations and things like that to get more reproductive health training. Because I am largely interested in everything, I chose a residency in family medicine. I did both my medical school and my residency in a large urban area. I was in Chicago. I grew up in the suburbs, but my, my training was in these big settings. Despite being in these large places, somewhere in the middle of residency, it just got it in my head that, hey, maybe I'd like to go live in a tiny town and you know, be the town doctor and have patients pay me in chickens and I'll bake pies and things like that. But I'd never gotten to try that out. You know, I'd never lived anywhere really rural. So I set up a rural rotation when I was in residency that I got to try it for just a month. I was based in a town of about 10,000 people. And then I got to work with a physician in a smaller community several miles away that was about 800 people, 1,000 people, something like that, and was really rewarded to see that it was basically exactly what I expected, that in the hospital, the family medicine doctors were really running the show, that in the clinic, people really did bring in corn from their farms, and they brought in canned tomatoes. And, you know, sometimes the doctor could just say, I'm not going to charge this person because I know he can't pay for it, but he'll bring me some corn every so often. And it really was kind of just what I expected. So through that experience, I figured out, yeah, I really would like to live in a smaller place and try to be a small town doctor. But I also really love to teach I don't like teaching in large settings necessarily, but one-on-one -on -one and sort of like training medical students or training younger residents when I was the senior resident, that was always really exciting to me. Um, so I knew that I wanted to do that, but also do that in a rural setting. So before coming out to the job I have now, which is teaching at a residency, I did a one-year fellowship to make me a better teacher overall, but also get advanced reproductive health procedural skills. And that was a fantastic fellowship that was in New York City. And the only way that I would go to New York City for the year was knowing that I got to come to this small town in Southern Oregon 
after that, that like I had this light at the end of the tunnel. So right now I teach at a rural residency, like I said, in Southern Oregon. It's a pretty isolated part of the country. The town that I'm in is not super tiny. It's about 25,000 people in the town proper, but we are, you know, we have a big mountain range on one side and farmland every other side. So we really are sort of the main city for the area. Probably about half of my time is just seeing patients in clinic. I'm a full-scope family medicine doctor, so it's you know seeing people who come in with any kind of medical problems. And then the other half of my time is different teaching. So that's supervising the resident doctors in clinic or working in the hospital or supervising them on labor and delivery. I chose this place in particular, partly because of that. I want to be a small town doctor and live by the mountains and have access to the ocean. But I also wanted to come to a place where there really was a need to improve the reproductive health skills of the residents. Because the people that I am training right now are the ones who are going to go out to those tiny towns of 500 people, 1,000 people, and really be the only doctor that is available to the majority of their patients. And I wanted them to have the best reproductive health skills that they could have so that they could improve access for rural women who are traditionally pretty underserved. In terms of the patient population we see now, it's just whoever's in town. The town is pretty homogenous racially. It's mostly white, some Hispanic populations. Most of the patients at my clinic, or not even most, but my my clinic has more of the Medicaid population than a lot of the other clinics in town. So my patients are primarily poor, working poor, We have some migrant workers who come through to work in the strawberry fields and the potato fields and the agriculture that we have around here. But then we also have other physicians and there's like the technical colleges in town. And so we have the professors from there too. So it's a a good mix of people. But overall, my population is the the poorer people in town and the people more likely to be on uh, varieties of public insurance. And then my, my second job which is an extremely part-time thing, is that I travel monthly to a family planning clinic in another part of the state so that I can provide pregnancy terminations. Because with a lot of the cultural barriers in my town, I'm not allowed to do that in my hospital or in my clinic. So you said that the city you practice in has about 25,000 people, which most people from rural areas like myself would say is not what I would consider rural. But I want you to explain to our listeners like the ties or how your community is tied to rural populations? Yeah, defining rural is such an interesting thing to me because as a person who you know lived all of my adult life in these major metropolitan areas, I feel like I'm in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> but then, you know, my town has the hospital and like a couple of large grocery stores. So we are a huge city for all of these outlying towns that are, you know, 800 people and don't have any sort of stores and don't have a post office or have a library that's open two days a week. So my my residency is technically defined as a rural residency because there's all these layers of things where it's like rural versus frontier. But I don't want to get too stuck in that. It's it's I think we qualify as rural because a lot of our patients are coming from surrounding towns that are, you know, 20, 30 miles or more than that away, who have populations of, you know, a couple hundred to a couple thousand. I think part of what makes it feel particularly rural is the the geographic isolation. Because like I said, we're blocked by mountains, Um, we're surrounded by farmland. So even though mileage wise, we are not that far from a bigger city that has a regional airport and a target and things like that, it's on the other side of a mountain range. And if you don't have a car, it's not like there's public access or I'm sorry, public transportation to get over there. So it's a, it's a very isolating kind of a sensation, even though it might not be that far from the next largest place. Perfect. I just wanted to make sure that our listeners who also may be from a rural area be like, well, that's huge. Right, exactly. Make sure that they can understand what the tie is and, and then also get a little more detail about who your patients are. Oh, and can I add one more thing on that last question? Yes, of course. I think the, the other way that to me it ties into rural healthcare is that the residents that I am training are people who really want to go out to those smaller towns, that they end up going to, you know, the tiny towns mostly around Oregon and the Pacific Northwest, but really all over the country where they truly are the only town doctor. So it's it's that they are I'm training the people who are gonna go to those truly frontier locations. Very important work that you're doing. So another question that we ask all of our guests, and you kind of got into this a little bit when you talked about your background, but 
What informs your perspective or your practice? So you talked a little bit about why you got into reproductive health, specifically learning about access issues, but specifically if you want to talk about why you do what you do now and what's the most valuable to you. I think that the, my overarching principle of medicine and the thing that I try to go back to when I'm having a stressful day is that my goal is to help people live the lives that they want and to help facilitate my patient's autonomy. The reason that the reproductive health care goes so highly into that is that I think that's a huge part of letting people live the lives they want, being able to control their reproduction and not get pregnant before they want to, or when people do want to have children to be able to have the healthiest pregnancies that they can and have them safely and make sure that they're prepared for it. I think that ties in a lot to helping people live the lives that they want. It's not only reproductive health care, you know, it applies just as much to a 50 year old man who just had his first grandchild and wants to make sure that he stays alive long enough to enjoy that grandchild. So we talk about his diet and exercise and, you know, preventing heart attacks and strokes and things like that. It's about finding out what people's goals are for their lives and knowing how I can facilitate that through their health care. So things that come up a lot for me in my practice is that idea of the patient's autonomy, that I am not the boss of them. They do not have to do what I say. I give them an expert opinion and they do what they want with that information. And I I think that can be really frustrating for patients sometimes because I have such a focus on shared decision making that I really do want to know what they value and to find the best treatment for them. I think that's, that's something that comes up in my practice more than some of my other colleagues. That's great. Yeah. And of course, because we're on a podcast, you can't see us, but during your entire answer, I was nodding. Yes. Me too. too, (laughs) It's, it's, The definition of (laughs) patient-centered. Yes, it is. It was all patient-centered. And and of course, Stephanie and I are biased, but we too believe that reproductive health is something that is so critical and under kind of can in many ways underpin every other facet of our lives. So great answer. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So like we said, today we're going to discuss working with rural women. And this is something that I particularly like to nerd out on. So let's just go ahead and jump right in. My first question is, when you discussed your training, you talked about how you were training in predominantly big cities like Chicago and New York. But now you practice and serve in more rural areas. What drew you to the more rural practice? Part of it was just the life that I wanted to lead. I love big cities. I love the culture. I love getting to eat any kind of food any time of day. But I wanted to try being somewhere that was more natural, somewhere where I could get out and hike if I wanted, where I could ride my bike and not be worried about getting hit by cars, things like that. In terms of sort of the job satisfaction, family medicine doctors tend to get to do more when we are in less competition with other specialists. And family medicine doctors can be really broadly trained. You know, we have, we have a ton of, we have a really broad skill set and not everybody gets to use it if they live in a major city. Like for example, it can be hard to even be able to deliver babies as a family medicine doctor if you're in a major metropolitan area because there's enough obstetricians and they don't want you sort of in their pool. They sort of don't, don't want to have that competition from you and you get to do that when you're in a place that really needs doctors. The other part of it is just wanting to improve access to all kinds of reproductive health care. And I can do that both by being somebody who had some specialized training, can do you know more of the difficult IUD insertions and removals, can do the uterine aspiration for miscarriage or abortion, you know, can handle some of the more complicated pregnancy situations that arise, that I can bring that to this community as a family doctor, that I can provide it for my patients, and that I can also train the residents who, like we talked about before, are going to go out to these really, really rural frontier areas, and hopefully they will be able to provide better care for their patients there. Because those are people who will not have the option of going to a separate gynecologist unless they want to drive two hours in the snow, maybe over a mountain, etc. Again, having been trained in big cities and practicing in a rural area, um, we'll kind of switch gears and talk more population-based. What difference have you noticed between rural women and urban women? 
So I first wanted to touch on some of the similarities between these populations, because when I was working in urban areas, I was still working with populations who had access issues. So a lot of the issues of access are similar when you're talking about any disadvantaged group. So not having money to get to the doctor or time or not getting, you know, paid time off from work. So you can't take a sick day to go to the doctor, having insurance issues, things like that. What's different is privacy is really hard to come by here. In major cities, if I was talking to somebody about a sensitive reproductive health issue, they were not worried that somehow their mother, cousin, uncle, boyfriend, whoever was going to find out. They could safely go to a drugstore and pick up condoms or pick up their prescription medication and not be worried that somebody was going to know their private health details. And that's really hard to find here. You see people you know everywhere. The pharmacist is probably your uncle's cousin twice removed. So your mom is going to find out if you start birth control pills. So it's hard to keep private health information private. And I think that really limits how people access healthcare here. They're less open to wanting to ask about a lot of the more sensitive topics. And they they aren't able to get things like medications or condoms or even information because maybe somebody will walk by their screen at the library when they're looking up safe sex information online. There's also a difference in terms of some of the more advanced services, not specifically with reproductive health, but at least in my area, you know, there's just a lot of specialists we don't have that if people need to see a gastroenterologist, they have to drive over a mountain range, which in the summer is not a huge deal. In the winter can be pretty inaccessible. There's a lot of just those advanced services that we don't have in our town. So rather than people having to figure out how to get, you know, to a different health system in a major city and maybe take a different bus route, and it's still difficult to get there, here it can be much closer to impossible. I also just kind of want to piggyback with what you said about privacy. So I know we talked about this on the phone, but in my research I've done with rural women, that was a huge issue was privacy and making sure that nobody found out that you're on birth control or condoms. And some women went so far as to go to other communities altogether to purchase condoms Mm -hmm. if they were going to purchase them. Yeah. So speaking of differences, what surprised you the most? And then how did you adapt your practice to accommodate those barriers? The biggest surprise to me when I got here was how suspicious everybody was. I think that, I don't know if it's specific to this community because it's, there are residents who come through on kind of this three-year cycle, or if it's just part of being an outsider in any smaller place, but there was a lot of like, oh, who are you? How long are you going to stay here? Like my patients not really wanting to accept me as their doctor initially because they didn't trust that I was going to be here, you know, and it, I, I couldn't hundred percent reassure them. I could say, you know, I, I have no intention of leaving anytime soon. And I did move across the country for this. So probably I'm going to hang out, but there was just a lot of suspicion and it was interesting to me how I had to adjust my voice to deal with that. I started just speaking a lot more folksy. And that was something that I actually started in New York because having Midwestern kindness there was like a superpower (laughs) that if you just smiled and said, please, you could get people to do whatever you wanted them to because they were so unused to it. (laughs) So it was using some of those same skills to just really try to disarm people and be as positive and smiley and outgoing as I possibly could, which is not necessarily who I am to start with. I was also pretty surprised by different opinions towards reproductive health care, even within the medical community, because I knew that, you know, the community is fairly conservative. We're the one red district in the state of Oregon in our in our congressional seat, which is, you know, the whole two thirds of this side of Oregon on the other side of the mountains. But I was surprised at the pretty conservative ideas even among healthcare providers. And I don't notice that so much among my own colleagues, but especially among our nursing staff or, you know, my my surgical colleagues that I might have to call for something, having these like really outdated ideas about what is appropriate reproductive health care having different ideas about how patriarchal to be and how demanding to be towards their patients. Um, It's just a very different idea about how the care provider patient relationship would go. Can you give us some examples? Yeah. So it was, it's been really hard to convince some of the folks in town that things like IUDs are actually appropriate first line choices for adolescents. 
you know, my nursing staff will say, oh, we can't do a next one on for this patient because her mom didn't say that it was okay. It's like, well, her mom doesn't have to say it's okay because it's for reproductive health purposes. And we'd talk about the laws and about how minors get to make their own health decisions for these different things. And then just like push back towards me doing particular procedures in clinic because they just were things they had never done before that like, oh, we shouldn't be doing these difficult IUD removals where you can't see the strings. We need to send that to a gynecologist because that's what we always do. And then having to come to the understanding that like, no, we can do that for our patient right here. We have those skills. We have those tools. We don't have to send them elsewhere. And then they're persistently in medicine. And I don't think this is particular to rural women. When we talk about things like the long acting reversible contraceptives, there is this idea that we have to like try to convince a patient to keep it if she doesn't want it, which is, you know, completely doesn't make any sense. If somebody wants a device out of their body, you should take it out of their body. But that's something that I run into a lot more here. It's been a major theme, I think, from all of our guests saying that. They yeah. get a lot of pushback from other providers or nurses sort of critiquing them like, oh, you know, that person that costs a lot of money or they should give it a longer try or whatever. Right. And that's not to say that it's not appropriate to talk about why they want it removed or, you know, if it's a symptom related thing, if we can manage it in the short term, if they want to keep it, but that if you have that discussion and they just want it out, you can't make them keep it. So you started answering the last question about the differences that you saw that kind of surprised you when you started working with rural patients. Did you find that there was a difference between how women perceive risk differently between urban and rural women when it comes to risk of getting pregnant or risk of getting a sexually transmitted infection? So for some reason, nobody thinks that they can get pregnant or that they can get STIs. I have no idea who these doctors are telling women with a uterus that they can't get pregnant, but apparently there's a bunch of them because they have, have had so many patients who are like, I was told I could never get pregnant. Say, well, you have a uterus and ovaries, so you probably can. I think the, the pregnancy difference I don't notice so much in the urban versus rural because I think they're... I've always been in populations where young pregnancy, unintended pregnancy, unplanned pregnancy is fairly common. But for some reason, there is this like cloud of secrecy around STIs in a more rural setting that just nobody thinks that they exist in our community. Nobody thinks that their friends have had them. When realistically, I don't remember the statistic off the top of my head, my county either has the highest or the second highest rate of chlamydia in the state. Like we have a lot of STIs, but my patients just do not think that this will ever happen to them. They don't think that they have to take any sorts of precautions. And I think some of that is about how everybody knows everybody. And so if you know that you're having sex with John and that John has previously had sex with Amy and you know Amy and Amy can't have chlamydia because she's your friend and she would have told you if she had it, you just assume that everybody's fine when in reality, nobody's talking about it. So just everybody's getting chlamydia. How do you deal with that kind of low perceived risk of getting an STI? I think there's a couple different ways to approach it, kind of depending on the patient. I love using facts because I think my patients are smarter than people tend to give them credit for. So if I tell them, no, we actually have one of the highest rates of chlamydia in the state, they are shocked by this. And then for a lot of them, it actually does change their behavior. I think something else to talk about with them is about the, the issues of medical privacy that we already talked about, the fact that it is so hard to maintain confidentiality in our area. So people don't necessarily tell their friends when they're going through things like this because they're so afraid of stigma. At the same time, when I am telling a person, typically a young person, that they, they have an STI, that I think is a really good time for education and to encourage them to tell other people about it, If you know, obviously, if they feel safe and have the tools, etc. But to be able to say, no, this is really common and this is such a huge thing in our area, you know, but remind them this is not a death sentence. They're all worried that they're going to be infertile or that they're marked for life or that their future partners will be able to tell they had chlamydia once five years ago. So it's a lot of reassuring people who have been diagnosed with a lot of those facts that like, no, it's really important that you got tested, I'm applauding people for coming in. You know, I'm, I'm so impressed that you took charge of your reproductive health care and you made sure you're staying healthy so that we could test you and treat you. Good for you. Hooray. 
tell your friends, but kind of encouraging people to talk amongst themselves. Because I think that is one of our best ways to put out information, probably in any population, but especially with young women, adolescents, teenagers, to, to tell them to talk amongst themselves when they actually have good data and spread the word that way. I'm also going to go ahead and jump in on this since this is something that was definitely part of my research. And like you, I there's definitely the secrecy and then also this extremely low perceived risk of getting an STI. I had um, some women so far as to go to tell me that STIs, plain and simple, do not exist in their community at all. Like there are none, no, no STIs in their community. And then they would also say... If you were to have an STI and someone found out about it, that would be social suicide. Because like you said, this whole everyone knows everyone kind of creates this this trust that, oh, I trust you. I know who you've had sex with. I know all the people you've been with. I trust them. And they don't have an STI, which means you don't have an STI, so we're good. And it's interesting, the role of trust in rural communities, especially because even if you do research, just like culturally looking at trust, there's a ton of research out there that says that rural people are just more trusting people. So you ne- you just have this blanket that they're just more trusting. And now when you have this, everyone knows everyone, and I know what your sexual background is, now it's even infiltrating and putting people at more risk of getting an STI. And it was interesting when I talked to one woman, the reason that she had actually called me, she was at a clinic with her friend and her friend was just diagnosed with, I think, chlamydia. And she goes, it's just rocking my world that my friend has chlamydia because this is also the same woman who thought that there are no STIs in her community. And so she was struggling to even just wrap her head around the fact that, okay, well, first I thought nobody had STIs in my community, but now my best friend does. What do we do with that? And and again, like you get in this social suicide. Well, if someone has an STI, they're certainly not going to tell anybody because that just spreads like wildfire that you have this STI. And so, yeah, it's interesting that you are also finding what I found in my research. Obviously, my research was in Iowa. You're practicing in Oregon. But between the two, yeah, you have this trust, this everyone knows everyone and an extreme extremely low perceived risk of contracting an STI. And so it's great that you're able to give some pointers and talk about how you talk to them about it. I I sometimes maybe worry or have concern, you know, I wonder how much they do go and talk to their friends about it afterwards, but they're definitely getting information out there that, yep, <laughs> they do in fact exist in your community. <laughs> I, have, I have two thoughts about that. On the trust issue, What's interesting to me about that is that that is a reason a lot of patients tell me they can't use condoms is because they trust their partner and they don't want their partner to think that they don't trust them. And that if they ask their boyfriend or girlfriend to use a condom, that means that they don't trust them. And that for me is a space to have a talk with the patient about a different way that they could frame that conversation. That it's not, it's not that you don't trust that person. It's just that you know that things exist in the world. It's not that you think that person is lying to you or keeping something from you, but just that until you both go to a clinic and get tested together and get negative tests, nobody knows for sure. And that it really is about like taking charge of their own body, um, protecting themselves. It's not a lack of trust for that person. Oh, and I was going to say, so the the second thing that um, that brought to mind for me was just all of the opportunities for community education, because you're completely right. As much as I encourage my patients to talk to their friends, like, you know, the people that they trust about STIs, most of them are not going to because they're really worried about what will happen. Or they had a friend who had chlamydia and they saw how he or she was ostracized completely. So there, there's a lot of space in rural communities, but in my community particularly, to do education in the public school system, to do education. Um, One of my residents right now is trying to develop a project to do work with women who have been in and out of the jail system. So women who are not currently incarcerated, but have been before and just do some health education classes about whatever they want to talk about, you know, specifically looking at STIs and, and actually providing the resources so that people have a little bit more But then at the same time, the barrier is the schools don't want us coming in and how to use condoms, even though it's a state mandated thing. Don't get me started. You know, parents are are still afraid that that is going to make their child become sexually active. 
And of course, no one believes that their perfect angel is the one who is already having sex and who, you know, doesn't, doesn't have this information and it will help protect them from diseases or pregnancy if they actually have the information rather than making them promiscuous. And that's exactly it. I had a lot of women who would just say, I just wish we would have someone would have talked to me about this. I just wish they would have told me where to go. I wish that our community or our parents wouldn't say one thing, but then they're doing the other. And it kind of just keeps creating the secrecy that, you know, nobody's talking about it. And, and it's just so interesting. I mean, I think all the women I talk to, they're like, I just want more information but nobody gives it to them. And even though there are state mandates, I mean, I read the Iowa mandate and it talks about what needs to be included, but at the very bottom of it, it says, this is to not discourage or prohibit the use of using an abstinence-only course to satisfy these requirements. Hmm. See, I I have a different situation where we have a really well-written law, but there's not enforcement of it. Yes, well, that's true too. Well, and, and one more, this is, probably honestly a whole nother podcast to talk about talking <laughs> about the kind of marketing of condoms, how everyone assumes that if if I say, well, let's use a condom, it's be, I'm either implying that I have something you don't want or that you have something right. I don't want. And it's interesting how as, on a public health level, we have marketed condoms as a primary means to prevent STIs and it's kind of backfired on us. And I actually listened to a really great presentation where they talked about the marketing of condoms and how they were trying to change the messaging attached to it and trying to make it more positive where it's like, you know, we could try these different textures of condoms and, you know, have more pleasure during sex. So, yeah, again, that's probably a whole nother podcast, but interesting that you brought that up that, you know, the whole marketing for condoms and how the trust plays a role in the trust of the role in rural areas. So that's all I really want to talk about. But, and again, that's probably a whole nother podcast, how we could talk about using condoms. Oh, but could I say one more thing about it? Yes, you can. (laughs) One of my favorite things to tell young women is that if they tell their boyfriend that they're not going to have sex unless they use a condom, most adolescent boys are going to go for that. (laughs) you know that like your boyfriend really wants to have sex with you and I'm sorry that I'm mostly talking about adolescence and like heteronormative etc but though that is the conversation that I have most often and just Mm -hmm. realistically telling young women like nah dude wants to have sex so if you tell him it's condom or nothing he's probably gonna prick condom very real very accurate right okay so and I think this next question really hits on other things that you've talked about. So regarding communication with rural women and how that differs from urban women, you've talked about how when you moved to this rural area, you spoke more, you called it folksy, so positive, outgoing, smiling. With a a twang. twang. (laughs) That was the folksy. Dropping my G's more often, you know? Yes, it's the same in Iowa, I think, a little bit. So... Is there any other ways that you feel communicating with rural women is different than with urban women? Yeah, I think part of what is different about communicating is that the, and this is of course, just in the settings that I've worked in, I I have to be a little bit leery of like being the spokeswoman for rural women, but at least where I am, uh, we have to bring up difficult topics a lot more that in the urban settings I've worked in, women have felt more free to bring up ideas of contraception or STIs or do I need a pap smear or what's going on with this lump in my breast. Whereas with rural women, I found more often people don't bring those things up on their own. And because I I have like kind of an awareness of this and it's the thing that I get really jazzed about, I bring it up more. You know, I, I make sure to ask about sexual health and, you know, sexual interest. And, you know, even with my, my menopausal women, you know, are you still, are you having sex? Does it hurt so that we can talk through those things? And these are things that they say, oh my gosh, I've been struggling with this for 10 years and I didn't know it was okay to talk to my doctor about this. So we just have to be really non-judgmental and, and specifically name these topics. And then once you kind of get into them, maybe if you've brought up something that's uncomfortable, they will feel more free to bring up something else that's uncomfortable. Something else that I think is really difficult about the communication is that 
historically, I would give people, you know, great websites to go to, like check out Bedsider, check out this one. And it's really a lot harder for people to do that here. They don't always have internet access. There's not as many libraries. Maybe they can't get there. Maybe the the hours are really limited. And that was something that in urban settings, you know, everybody could get to the library. You could just go and you could use a computer and you could get information and you could go one library over where you probably wouldn't know anybody and you could, you know, privately search for things about sexual health or where do I get an abortion or like how do I buy a condom or what happens if I miss a pill? And people really just don't have access to the information superhighway to get that kind of stuff here. And then also, like we were talking about with sexual health education in school, that even if there are really well-written state laws about evidence-based sexual health education, that doesn't mean that they're getting done. And they're a lot less likely to be done properly in rural areas versus urban areas. So again, we kind of hit on this a little earlier, but you talked about how, what, you know, where we kind of got excited with some of the words that were very patient centered that you were using, but how do you specifically, or how does your clinic create a women centered environment specifically to rural women in your area? I don't know that we have yet. I think it's something that we are working on. I think as individuals, we try to be patient centered, but it's hard to make some of the systemic changes. And I think things that would be more woman-centered or more patient-centered is just like putting up posters about some of these more difficult topics or saying like, it's okay to ask your doctor about this or giving people, you know, questionnaires that they could fill out ahead of time with like, is there anything that you want to make sure is addressed? And those are a lot of things that we could do so that patients could sort of get a sense that they can ask their doctor or their um, healthcare provider anything and also have a way to sort of privately bring up their concerns if they get scared in the moment and they don't feel comfortable doing that. I think something that I don't think is specific to rural women, but who knows, it may be, is there is this idea that the well woman visit is separate from a like well person visit that you can do sort of a preventive health visit for a man and talk about his diet and exercise and reproductive health and all that kind of stuff at one time. But that for a woman, because you need to do a pap smear and maybe a breast exam, that this has to be a whole separate thing. And that is this extra barrier to being a woman-centered, patient-centered space where you're saying you have to take an extra day off work, you have to find childcare again, whatever that barrier is, you're saying, you have to come back a separate day for your reproductive health stuff because we have siloed it. So one of the things that I work towards doing is making sure that happens as little as possible, setting the expectation that, no, it it takes five minutes to do those extra things. You're also going to do some extra things for a man that does not need to be an additional barrier. And that's to some degree a misogynistic barrier. Well, I think that this is also a good time to kind of do a little plug on our website. We do have this little how to make your communication more patient-centered or woman-centered. And then attached to it, we also have this clinic form that you can use. And Stephanie and I have created this form and I've actually used it during my OB appointments and it's been great. And my OB had positive response to it too. And it asks like five questions. And one of them is, what are your goals for today? Do you have more information about X? There's also a health literacy question so doctors can get a good kind of sense of what their patient's health literacy is. It also asks what the patient pronouns are. So I don't know if you'd be interested in this form, but for our listeners, if you if they are also interested too, just head over onto our website, www.womancenteredhealth.com and right on the front page you can download that guide and then it'll have that clinic questionnaire if that's something you want to implement into your practice. But like I said, my doctor had a great response to it and I use it every time I go. And I think what we hope is that by the patient writing down what they maybe want to talk about, it kind of overcomes maybe that barrier of them bringing it up verbally or face to face with you. So we're hoping that, you know, maybe we can overcome that barrier with that form as well. So I I love that you brought up the idea of making sure you clarify your patient's pronouns because, you know, obviously we're talking about women. So we are using a lot of she and her, but we're also talking about 
trans women in this space, right? And when we talk about bodies capable of being pregnant, then we're also talking about trans men. So making sure that you know how your patient wants to be addressed is huge. And I think just having that form on a questionnaire creates this whole environment of, oh, okay, this this clinic actually gets me and knows a little bit about what's important to me. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a huge thing to put out there either on a questionnaire or in a first visit and to do it for everybody, not just people who look sort of androgynous. Yes. And the other question that we have on there are three important things in my life are because what we found in some of the research that Stephanie and I had done is that, like you said, women don't want to just bring up these hard topics. But then also women also felt that their doctors don't know anything about them. So we kind of created this as to try and kind of get a nitty gritty so that doctors before they go into the room can see what are the pronouns? What do they need to know that's going on in their patient lives? Because that certainly affects how we communicate with patients or maybe something that would affect a treatment plan. And then again, the goals for that appointment and then if they have any information. So yeah, we of course like it. <laughs> you know, urge you all to check it out. But anyways, I digress. Stephanie, next question. Earlier on, you talked about privacy being a big barrier for rural women, probably more so than in an urban setting, and then also access. Would you say that those are the biggest barriers that you face with your patients when it comes to sexual and reproductive care? Yeah, I would. I think those are those are two of my of my top three barriers that it's yeah, you can't get private health care like you can in other spaces. It's hard to find things. And I think it's also a lack of role modeling of different types of women's lives that I find more in a rural community than in an urban community. In an urban community, I was much less likely to find the high schooler who just assumed that she would be pregnant by the end of high school and then would drop out and to to become a full-time parent. And I find that a lot more here. And it's not necessarily an aberration because that is how their family structure goes. And those are the opportunities that are available for women in their lives. You know, that's how their their mother's lives have been, their grandmothers, their aunties, their their sisters, everybody. So it's it's when I talk about the idea of trying to help people with their autonomy and help them have the life that they want to have, if people don't have any idea that they have a choice in how their life is, and they've never seen anybody modeling a different sort of life, then you can't really have a discussion about autonomy and you can't really facilitate goals if somebody has never thought that she has the power to have a goal. Yeah, that's where I, that's really where I nerd out because that's what (laughs) my research is in reproductive life planning, which is all about setting goals and finding that providers are having to have these discussions with their patients, like federally funded family planning clinics Mm -hmm. to discuss reproductive life planning and how a lot of their patients maybe don't have goals because they really don't feel that they could achieve those goals. And so they don't even really have, you know, have them in the the sense that maybe a more, you know, middle income educated person might. And so I think that, I think that's really important to bring up, especially amongst clinicians who probably do have a lot of goals and have achieved a lot of goals. Yeah, that that's, what's really interesting to me is that we as, you know, highly educated healthcare professionals and researchers and people with advanced degrees, I'm going to guess that we are planners and yes. that for the most part, we are not people who are ambivalent about pregnancy, Right. you know, that we have either known if we are people who are capable of pregnancy and like in relationships that could get us pregnant, et cetera, that we kind of know whether or not we want to be pregnant at any given time. And the first time I started like being introduced to the concept of pregnancy ambivalence, it just blew my mind that, oh my gosh, there are women who like really are sort of in the middle and aren't trying, but aren't not trying. And it just fascinated me. So that again, is not not specific to rural women, but I see a lot more of that middle of the road, like not even ambivalence, but just lack of agency. So that's, that's a thing that I find comes up a lot in teaching is reminding residents or, you know, other clinicians that I'm training in different settings, that pregnancy ambivalence is not the enemy, it is okay to be ambivalent, but to kind of find that space where you're helping your patient 
know that she has options, but also if she wants to kind of stay in that middle road of like, hey, if it happens, it happens, that that's okay too. So I'm also going to insert my nerdness here too. So I did research with college women and rural women, and it was all about responsible sexual behavior, how they defined it and how they managed it. And what was interesting was for college women, predominantly they had very clear goals. I want to have my degree by this time. I then want to get married and then have kids. Like that was very clear. And they were very aware of how their reproductive lives would impact their overall life goals. And when I asked rural women what goals they had, they were not clear cut. Not, And I'm not saying this is blanket for all of them, but for the most part, they didn't have finite time ending. It wasn't... I, you know, I'm going to go to college and get this degree by this age and then have kids. It was like, oh, I might go back to school. I'd like to pay my house off. Oh, maybe I'd move here. And when I asked them how their reproductive lives would impact their goals, it was just like deer in the headlights. And they even told me that they they see that as separately. They don't see their reproductive selves impacting their goals. And they really struggled to articulate like, oh, if I had a kid right now, yeah, I'm probably not going to pay my house off really soon. So it was just interesting. And like you had picked up, you know, when you're educated or not just educated, but when you have advanced degrees, you do have all these. I'm going to get this degree, then this degree, then this degree. And you're overly aware of how your reproductive self would impact that. And it was just interesting the difference between women who are enrolled in college and women who are already working in in the community. So yeah, it's interesting the underpinnings of the role of goals and how they see them connected or not to their reproductive selves. Did you find in your research that rural women had a harder time articulating goals or did you get women who were like deer in the headlights just at the question of goals? Yeah, that too. Okay. So with those, the three biggest barriers you spoke about, the privacy, their access, and then just the lack of role models, how do you overcome those barriers to help women or, or help women overcome those barriers on their own? So one of the biggest things that we can do to help women overcome those barriers is like we were talking about earlier, just providing more information and all of the different ways that we kind of have to change things to get that information to rural women. Like these are people who can't always take printed handouts home because they're afraid that somebody is going to see it. Um, They don't have the internet access. So kind of having more space in our click time and finding out how a person wants to learn and how they can access information is, I think, a big part of how we can help people overcome barriers. Another big thing is just asking questions and learning to shut up and let your patient answer the questions so that you can find out, you know, if it's about lack of role modeling, like find out what her life is like, find out what she wants out of life. Another thing that I try to do a lot is normalizing. And we talked about this a little bit with STIs, like talking about how common STIs are, talking about how common unplanned pregnancy is, talking about the fact that most people, almost all people have sex with postmenopausal women, that it's really common to have pain with sex or changes in function or kind of bringing bringing up these more invasive, more sensitive questions in a way that shows this is a fairly common thing that a lot of patients like you experience. Do you have questions about that? Do you have concerns about that? So people feel more free to access things. I don't have a great way to overcome the privacy issue because I think it's a legitimate thing that if there's only a couple pharmacies in town or only one pharmacy in town or only one pharmacy 20 miles away people may know that you got birth control pills. Things that I would like to see my own clinic do that we don't do is being able to dispense things like that. So right now, my option for women who can't use a pharmacy but want to you know, get birth control pills or need a different sort of prescription is that they can go through the public health department and then just pick it up and know that you know they don't know the people who work there or the people who work there actually know about and respect medical privacy. So giving them that resource, but I don't have a better way to overcome the fact that they are going to see, people are going to see them buying condoms. I'm working on getting condoms in my clinic and I'm working on finding funding sources so that people can just take them. But some of those things, I, I don't have a good way to overcome them yet. 
Yeah, that is a difficult thing. And, you know, if, if other providers aren't going to respect HIPAA, then there's not right. a lot you can do about that. Or, or just if somebody in line behind them at the pharmacy overhears the clerk saying, oh, for orthoebra, and they say yes, you know, somebody else heard. Mm-hmm. So you've mentioned along the way a lot of unique considerations when communicating with rural women. So the privacy issue, kind of that suspicion that they had when you came to town and and started seeing them. And then also just kind of a lower perceived risk. Are there any other special considerations that you think rural women have that providers should keep in mind when seeing them as patients? Yeah, I I think keeping in mind that as a population, the rural communities might be less open to talking and less open to being, you know, fully, fully forthright with all of their medical details is something that we just have to keep in mind when working with rural populations or really anybody who's disadvantaged. I find this a lot when I'm working with residents that, you know, they've seen a patient for three years and then the patient finally just discloses some important bit of health information and the resident feels betrayed. They feel like they didn't trust me. They didn't tell me the whole story. How am I supposed to care for this woman when she won't really tell me what's going on or she lied to me? And I think we as providers have to remember that if our patients don't choose to tell us everything, they, they have really good reasons for it. And we don't know their lives. We don't know their experiences. We can't tell them that those reasons aren't true because we don't know. So knowing that if your patient can't be fully open with you, you know, there are things that you can do to improve that, but it's not something to be suspicious of your patient about, or it's not something to shame your patient or let that wreck that relationship. And always make sure that you are expressing to your patients that you are open to talking about these more difficult things, that they can bring up new new information, that you can ask them, you know, what health changes have you had or what things are new in your life so that they can tell you about these things when, if they become comfortable with it. The other thing that I find more in rural women is that they are overall less free to act on their own impulses and their own desires. It seems like there is a lot more family burden in the equation. And that that might be, you know, a husband, a wife, a child, it could be a parent, but that there is an expectation that things will go a certain way and that they just don't have the same amount of options to get away from that choice so that they aren't wrong when they say, I'm going to be pregnant by the time I'm 18 and I'm going to have kids because that's how everything has always worked. I can't realistically tell them that they have a different option. So knowing that, I guess it's, it's about knowing your limitations, knowing what you can and can't offer your patient and just respecting that they are the people in charge of their own stories and they're going to give you the best information. Yeah, I agree with you having the family implications. And then one thing I kind of wanted to um, parse out a little bit was you talk about the the importance of bringing up topics because women aren't going to be, you know, volunteering all this information. What would you say to the doctor who's like, well, if I bring up these topics, that's going to make my appointment times longer and I don't really have time for that. So how do you manage bringing up, you know, maybe someone would call it opening a can of worms? So my initial response to that is suck it up and be a good doctor and run late, Um, (laughs) which stinks, right? Because that's obviously my own perspective. I am chronically late because I do like to have in-depth conversations (laughs) with my patients. The the other thing is that the first time you bring these things up, you are going to open a can of worms and you are going to run late that time. But we are not especially in a rural community, we are not in the business of seeing people one time. We get to know our patients over time. We see them at the drugstore and at your kid's soccer game and all those other places. So you are going to make that big opening gambit that actually opens a can of worms probably once with a patient. And then subsequent times, you're going to jump back to it. It's like everything in medicine where when you're trying to add one more thing, when you're trying to have an in-depth discussion about diet or you're discussing end-of-life care, like sometimes you have to have an extra visit for that. Sometimes you have to you set your agenda. And if you were supposed to be talking about hypertension today, but you actually end up talking about, you know, postmenopausal vaginal dryness and pain with sex, then maybe you just schedule another visit to talk about hypertension and code hire. 
go ahead and code higher. But like if you are you are billing at, you know, a level three, four or five for an office visit, and if you're typically billing a three, you're doing an extra service, you're going to bill higher, use your time based coding when you're doing more counseling, that's a way to get, um, you know, appropriate reimbursement when you don't necessarily have a lot to write in the chart when you really did do a lot of education and counseling, use your time based coding, it's still going to take more time, but you're going to be compensated for it. So the other question that we have, since we're still kind of talking specific to women, is do you have any other tips for providers who work with rural women? Um, It's mostly reiteration of things that we already talked about. Ask questions. Listen to your patients. Stop talking so that people actually have the space to speak. Come comfortable with silence because if somebody doesn't initially answer a question or they leave a little pause you know, we're busy and we have 15 or 20 minutes and we try to jump in with the next topic, let the space linger a little bit to see if your patient wants to elaborate on that, see if she wants to bring up something else and just develop a strategy for bringing up awkward topics because my way is not going to work for every way. You know, my general approach to the the stuff that people have a harder time talking about is, um, I think I, I described a little bit earlier, normalizing it and saying, you know, this is a thing that's really common. Or I ask everybody about domestic violence because, you know, women don't bring it up unless I ask them about it. So sort of phrasing it in the, this is something I like to talk to all of my patients about, or this is something that is a common problem in women in your age group. So that patients know that if they are having whatever issue you're talking about, they are not abnormal. There's nothing wrong with them. They aren't like admitting something you've never heard before, but that's, that's my approach. And it's going to be different for everybody sort of depending on your own personal style. But I think figuring out the right way for you to bring up awkward topics is a really important part of developing relationships in a rural community. And my follow-up question to that is what would you say are the top awkward topics that you bring up. Okay. So if someone's listening to this, they're like, well, what should I bring up? What would you say is most popular? So anything related to, not anything related to pregnancy, um, abortion, miscarriage, STIs, sexual practices, sexual discomfort, sexual enjoyment, urinary incontinence, Those are the big ones that come up for me with women and domestic violence. But I think culturally, we're a little bit more aware of that. And like more people have incorporated that into their practice as a standard thing to check on. Okay, so what do you mean by sexual practices? Do you have sex with men, women or both? What kinds of sex do you have? You know, because it's different health concerns for somebody who has strictly anal sex versus vaginal sex or people who are you know, having oral sex don't know that they are at risk for some STDs because they assume if they're not having intercourse, they're not having quote unquote sex. You have to kind of delve into the details of what sorts of sexual activities do you participate in and with whom? Perfect. I just wanted to unpack that a little bit. Okay. So we're going to switch gears a little bit here. We've talked a lot about just kind of the one-on-one communication with women, but I want to talk about something that uh, we had talked about on the phone previously. And that was that you had met some barriers with your clinic trying to get a uterine aspirator to offer more options for miscarriage management. And I was just wondering if you could share that story with us and our listeners and how you had to frame how you talked about that to line up with the dominant ideologies of your hospital in order to get the aspirator. Yeah, that that was such an interesting welcome to rural healthcare sort of experience. Um, For anybody in your audience who doesn't know, a uterine aspirator or a manual vacuum aspirator is this really simple handheld device, doesn't require any electricity, that you can use for a variety of procedures. You can use it to help complete a miscarriage. You can use it for pregnancy termination. You can use it or like a very complicated IUD removal, if the strings are missing, there's a couple other uses for it. But I was interested in getting it for our clinic specifically to help manage miscarriages to make sure that my patients had all of their options available to them. Because in my community, it was not uncommon for a pregnant woman who was bleeding in early pregnancy to be told to go to the emergency room. And then if she goes to the emergency room, she's found to be having a miscarriage to be taken to the OR. You know, I assume all of your, your audience knows that, that that is not necessary. That doesn't have to be standard of care because I'm all about choices. I'm all about options. 
I wanted to be able to offer my patients, you know, options of just waiting to complete the miscarriage themselves, having procedural management, which would require the the MBA or manual vacuum aspirator, or using medication to help complete it. So I asked the folks at my clinic who do the ordering, like, hey, I want to do this thing. I'm obviously trained in it. Here's my entire case log. Um, You know, I've done many hundreds of these. How do I get this thing? And I just kept getting rejection after rejection and kind of pushback after pushback saying, oh, the ordering committee has to take a look at it. No one had ever heard of an ordering committee before. Like, no, there there has never been a concern like this that I could tell. They looked at every case report of this particular device. And one time someone had a like septic abortion and they had used this device. And I was like, yeah, that's one out of many millions of uses. So it's probably not the device's fault. What it came down to was that as a clinic, they were worried that I, as the new doctor, was going to like come in and secretly start aborting all of the babies But it took several months for me to figure out that this was the issue with this committee who decided whether or not we could order something. There were also issues with, I think, some of the other specialists around scope of practice and people who thought, well, a family medicine doctor can't do this. Like These should all have to go to the the obstetricians. And the way that I had to overcome this was to finally figure out, when does this committee meet? It's been five months at this point. I need to just go talk to these people. I brought a stack of data that showed, yes, family medicine doctors can do this just as safely as OB-GYNs. And yes, doing this in clinic is just as safe as doing it in the OR, if not more. It's actually much cheaper. And I, I brought up the idea of my rural patients deserve the same standard of care as any urban woman. And I think that out of all of the topics that I brought up, out of all of the stacks of evidence kind of rebutting their safety concerns and bringing up some cost benefits and things like that, what really struck a chord was saying like, you are treating your women differently because they live in a rural area. This is not an abnormal thing in any other setting that I've worked and it is well within our scope of practice and that it is unfair to say that because these women live in a smaller town and they don't live in Portland or they don't live in Chicago, that they can't have all of these options. And I think that was what finally broke through to the idea of, oh, you really are just trying to like bring better healthcare to the women who live in your area. And that was what finally got the silly device that I've used like once every six months. It's not a common thing. It just, it took so long to fight with it. That's interesting that what ended up being most salient was just that you're treating women differently, not the data, not you know, that kind of stuff, but just simply that rural women deserve what urban women have. I think for some reason, I just find that really interesting. Yeah, I I did too, that the data wasn't the most important thing and, you know, costs of keeping people out of the operating room. And I'm sure that there were people for whom that mattered because this was a, a decently large group. But I'm sure that, you know, if there were some of the obstetricians who had issues, they really appreciated seeing the data, you know, and knowing that actually was trained to do this thing. But, but I think it was mostly about saying, you know, we need to be providing just as good of health care for our patients as we could anywhere else. And when I think you kind of touched on this to begin with then, that really this came down to making sure that you could offer your patients all of the same tool or not necessarily tools, but all the same options that other women have. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think one thing that's important for us to think about is that it's not just how we communicate with women one-to-one, but what are these bigger system levels issues, how they're affecting how we communicate with women. And so by you not having this tool, then that changes how you can and and what you can offer your patients. And so, you know, you kind of got to think of this communication as really kind of this double-edged sword of there's what happens between you and the patient directly, but then also how these bigger system level type stuff impact how and what we communicate to women. So on that note, is there anything else, Dr. Pierce, that you would like to add or throw out there before we kind of wrap up here? I have a couple final thoughts. One is just the caveat that I am one rural doctor in one rural community. So, you know, I I think we've talked about this throughout the interview. I'm speaking from my own experience and I, I can't speak for all people, you know, I assume everybody listening knows that, but just to make that explicitly clear. And also just that it was so great to talk to you guys. I feel like I could talk to you all day long. 
The feeling is mutual. I'm just so excited we got to have this conversation. Yes, the feeling is mutual. And I also want to do kind of an extra plug on what you said about being one doctor from one rural area and that we agree to, uh, you know, even though we kind of can throw rural women in one category, really being a rural woman can be very heterogeneous depending on where you are. A rural Oregon woman is probably a lot different than a rural Appalachian woman. And so- for listeners out there, if you two provide care to rural women and feel like you have kind of different ideas or different communication tips or even just a different subset that you're like, well, this is what I found in my rural practice, we would love to have you on the show and, and have more diversity among rural women. And of course, I'll nerd out over any rural woman. <laughs> so please head over to our website. You can send us an email or fill out our contact form because we would love to have more people talk about rural care. So Nicole and I would both like to thank you so much for your time today talking with us and for your commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health care through communication. Thanks, guys. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of WChat. Are you looking for ways to support us? Check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash WCH. And that's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And subscribe so that you can help us keep the show going while getting awesome extras. Want to be a part of the show? Go to our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com and send us an email Otherwise, be sure to follow us on Twitter at woman underscore centered and Facebook. Facebook.